I took that as an opportunity to be a father figure, to be an older brother, to be that shoulder, and to let the, the kids know that, hey, listen, um, you can, you can achieve, you simply have to believe that you can. Half of the battle is believing. I read a quote many, many years ago that said, um, uh, I told my students that they could do it, and so they did it. And it was only because I told them what they could do. Hey, y'all. I'm Jen. I'm a daughter, a sister, an auntie, a niece, a cousin, and a friend. And I love pineapple on pizza, spending all day in Disneyland, shopping for bargains on Amazon, and all things literacy. I'm a Jesus girl. I love people, and I love hearing their stories. In fact, that's what I'm doing here, sharing stories with powerful lessons to encourage us, empower us to keep moving forward, and to remind us that God has our back. I can't wait for you to hear these stories. Why don't you go ahead and join us for a story worth living? John Steinbeck said, and I quote, I have come to believe that a great teacher is a great artist, and there are as few as there are any other great artists. It might even be the greatest of the arts, since the medium is the human mind and spirit. So true, so true, so true. There are so many ways that we can characterize teachers. Um, We see them as artists, sculptors, entertainers, believers, and students, magicians, miracle workers, listeners, hard workers, dedicated, committed, and and everything else in between that we can think of, that's what a teacher is. And while we think of these epic educators, I'm sure that they are grateful for another summer break where they can rest from their multiple roles and all of the hats that they wear and where they're able to just take a load off. Because while these teachers are amazing, they are also exhausted. And while they are outstanding, they are also emotionally drained. And while they are phenomenal, they are also ready to step away from their classrooms, both physical and virtual, for a little while and replenish themselves. We honor our epic educators and we salute them as they ride off into the sunset for the summer. And while we have reached the end of our Epic Educator series, we will never reach the end of our deep appreciation for teachers. So I'd like to close the door on this Epic Educators series, which has been truly inspiring. With one final episode, we're going to go out with a bang, and it features a longtime friend from our elementary education program days in undergrad. Wow. Well, he's David Trofor, a dynamic, inspirational teacher who has been teaching for 21 years with kindergarten through eighth grade experience. And he has taught in both private and public sectors in places like Bermuda, Chicago, and currently Atlanta, Georgia, uh, a very large school system where he teaches third graders in the Atlanta public school system. He was even designated as teacher of the year at his school in 2016. Well, I am certainly excited for you all to hear his teacher's story worth living 
It's rich, it's powerful, and it comes straight from the heart and soul of a truly epic educator. I wanted to be a fireman at 10 years old. (laughs) And then uh, I had a few epiphanies. I do remember in elementary school, uh, the only black and brown male that I remember was the janitor, Mr. Alvarez. He was probably uh, Central America native, and he was in his 60s, and a substitute music teacher, Mr. Wilson. And it was just good to see I mean, as the eight, nine or 10 year old, I was like, wow, there, there's a black man. You know, I, it was all women. Most of my teachers in elementary were white. Um, I had two black teachers, however, in elementary in fourth and fifth grade. Uh, but it was somewhere in junior high to middle school. I started thinking about it and I realized that there were no men, black men, outside of my father and my four brothers that I would ever see in the public sector who were not either janitors or substitutes. So um, that struck a nerve. Um, You may or may not know, I did enter Oakwood as an undergraduate theology major and uh, spent three years in the theology department and took Greek and was about to take Hebrew until I talked to Dr. Lance V. Shand, (laughs) who uh, convinced, I wouldn't say convinced, he told me the benefits of a religious education degree, which would allow me to teach in the public sector as well as becoming a Bible teacher should I desire to teach for our institutional schools. So I said, hey, Get a degree in religious education, and you can kind of get the best of both worlds. You used to have this background with theology and minister, ministerial, you know, uh, pastoral ministry, um, and you can also be a teacher. And so I said, well, let's give it a go. And I think the following year, that's when I met Dr. Milanson and our wonderful Dr. Francis Bliss. So rolled over there to the department and they said, well, hey, you know, you have a lot of the courses already under your belt. Now you have to take what they used to call, as you recall, the methods courses. And um, one thing led to another. I got really excited about the elementary ed degree. I knew that I would be Alabama certified. Um, I just had to fill out some paperwork to get Georgia certification. And that was all she wrote. So right out of the stall, I didn't even get that master's. I went right in, all the way in neck deep. And uh, Bermuda was my first uh, assignment. One of the most beautiful islands in the world. You know? I mean, imagine that. Imagine, imagine that. But, you know, being young and and wanting to make a real difference, I didn't enjoy the pleasures of the island to the degree that someone else might, only because it was my first year, I knew that I had to make my mark. So I was pretty focused then. Not to say that I'm not now, but I was just trying to make sure I got all my T's crossed and my I's dotted. Born in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, We left Brooklyn when I was six years old. I'm the youngest of seven. Um, My wonderful mother and father did an amazing job raising seven children. Um, grew up in Miami and was not allowed or we could not afford uh, boarding school, 
Um, I was really wishing we had the money for Pine Forge. Um, there was a school in Central Florida, Forest Lake Academy. I dreamed of going to Forest Lake Academy. I just knew that I wanted to be in one of our schools, even as a youngster. I loved God from the very beginning. Hence, I ended up going to Oakwood as a ministerial student. Um, I thought I was going to be a preacher, as a matter of fact. that was I kind of had my eyes on that as well coming up, but things changed. Um, but I would say that I'm a, a very giving, passionate person, um, a loving husband, a loving father. I've got a two-year-old, and that's amazing. My friends call me Abraham on the side. Um, but uh, I love what I do. I love making a difference in the lives of people. Let me start there. Not even children, just impacting people, especially where there are needs and there's a sense that, hey, help is needed, help is on the way. Um, and so having that value instilled in me as a child, my father was an Adventist minister, um, he was the associate pastor at the Hebron uh, Seventh-day Adventist Church, which is the French Haitian Church in Brooklyn, New York. So I saw, uh, I saw nothing short of benevolence all of my life through my dad. Um, when we moved to Miami, there was in the mid to late 80s, there was an influx of Cubans and Haitians because of different reasons. They were migrating to Miami, Florida. So you had a lot of immigration camps. And my dad, on a weekly basis, was making sure that those folks were getting their paperwork together, making sure that they were taken care of from a uh, just basic needs, because many of them were just living in these, they're called immigration camps, but it it wasn't great. It was There was nothing good about it, as we know, even going on today, this whole situation with folks coming over on the border. But my father was an amazing, um, he's my inspiration. He's, he, he passed away um, in 05, but I am so thankful that he poured everything in me. Um, he poured in this and I think it's intrinsic. It's just the, the, the love and the compassion for others. I think that's, that's, that's a Christian ethic, but it's just also a human ethic as well. And my dad was a perfect model for that. And I think that I followed in his footsteps. One of the things that I'm noticing as I'm interviewing and having these conversations is that, and I don't, it's, it's these people that I'm talking, it's, it's you guys that I'm talking to you. Like the whole teaching thing is not surface. Like no. those roots go deep. And go. now that, you know, people are having the opportunity to talk about where that comes from is so inspiring to me. Um, so you got into elementary ed and mm -hmm. you got into teacher preparation. What was that like? The teacher prep part, you oh. know, cause I remember, <laughs> I remember when we did that, um, <laughs> that yeah. week at uh, Terry Heights. <laughs> oh yes, okay. that kind of stuff. Like, how how were those experiences for you? And did they Ooh. did they work to like motivate you more? You know, did it give you a good look into you know what you were headed towards? Yeah. As a matter of fact, it did. And my uh, my teacher, my senior teacher, was Mrs. Teresa Anderson. 
And she was a no holes barred. I'm going to tell it like it is. I'm going to tell you if your stuff stink. I'm going to tell you what's good. I'm going to tell you what's bad. And I'm going to love you through the entire process. Um, I could not have had a better teacher to uh, sit under. And I don't know if she'll ever hear this, but Teresa Anderson, I love you. And I thank you for what you poured into me um, in those uh, formative years. She was amazing. Um, She taught in a public school. And so I had an opportunity to see it in real time. And uh, again, you have to be kind of cut from a certain cloth for the patience that we need for our students and for the consistency that we need. Not just to know the pedagogy, but you just have to have a discipline of being sensitive to the needs of those who don't know what you know. And um, I want to say that my student teaching, I just tried to be like her. I literally just tried to be like Mrs. Anderson. Of course, being a male, and we still are very few and far between in the school system at the early um, at the early childhood level. Um, I took that as an opportunity to be a father figure, to be an older brother, to be that shoulder, and to let the, the kids know that, hey, listen, um, you can, you can achieve, you simply have to believe that you can. Half of the battle is believing. I read a quote many, many years ago that said, um, uh, I told my students that they could do it, and so they did it. And it was only because I told them what they could do. So a child will, in essence, do what you tell them. If you say that you are not, they are not, because they assimilate those words, the life and power that words bring. And so um, I've taken that very dear to heart. And I know that everything that I say, it's as if it's life and it germinates in the lives of our babies, our boys and girls. So um, I do think that I was prepared for this profession, not just um, professionally uh, matriculating at Oakwood, um, even in preparation in my student teaching. And uh, there are so many mentors that I've met along the way. My first principal um, was Theodosia Walton here in Atlanta, Georgia. And when I tell you, woo, not even a Christian, but the proponents and the tenants were so similar to Christianity. She was just a straight shooter. Um, Her words meant something. And she just had a moral ethic. And I was like, man, she's more Christian than people who claim Christianity. Um, So I'll never forget Theodosia Walton. Um, She was the first uh, public school principal that I had. And uh, very patient very giving. She knew I was a young, aspiring black male educator in elementary education. And all she did was nourish that. She, she didn't, she did nothing short of nourishing that and gave me more confidence and reminded me that I could do so much more if I would simply just continue to apply myself and pour my heart and soul into those kids. My first year I really enjoyed it. I really en- it was a different time. So right now this is 2021. Yes. This was 2000. This was 21 years ago. Things were a little bit different in the world. And while there still and always will be um 
these are young people who um, may not have the tools and the resources to be successful. I knew that when I walked in, it was a black school and there were many boys and girls who looked like me. And many of them simply needed a type of love and a compassion that transcended words. So my first year, I can give myself a pat on the shoulder. I had a wonderful first year. There were really no major glitches. Once you, I mean, and that was because of the planning and the training that we received. Lesson plans were very critical. So your planning is simply what determines the outcome of what happens in the class. And I have been, uh, I have tried to wing it, as all educators have for whatever reason. There are days where you just got to look, I don't have no plans, but we're going to go with it. Um, the reality, of course, that year, you know, we had to have our plans in every Friday for the following week. And I was fortunate enough my first year to teach an all boys classroom, all boys fifth grade. Not only was it all boys, it was gender based, but I was teaching one domain and that was math. So for those two reasons, I have to say I was fortunate enough to have an incredible year. Um, and <laughs> I'm, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for that. I remember, and I know we'll talk about some students, but I do remember uh, Robert Smith was a very robust, muscular fifth grader who had zero body fat and could not read and had anger issues but by the end of the year, he was reading on a third grade level. And those are one of the highlights of my career. Yeah, definitely was. Ah, uh, you know, I love that. You know, I love that. I cannot get enough of that. Mm -hmm. um, it's something um, working in a Title I school. Because mm -hmm. that's where we do the work. That's where it's, you are at ground zero. That's. Yep. That's Round. where the work happens, the real work. There's a blessing in teaching in our inner Title I schools because um, it's a different kind of approach you have to even take. Uh, again, my first year being in the private sector, private Christian sector, is a sharp contrast to teaching at a Title I you know, inner city where all of our babies are black and brown. Yeah. There's the poverty gap. There's there, there, there are seriously inequities in education. And part of it is because of the diverse poverty, low income, like all of that impacts education. It directly affects it. And, uh, it's not to say that those kids cannot learn, but they just don't have some of the same resources that they can lean on. Having a two-parent home is critical. Doesn't mean that a kid can't be amazing with a single parent, but the odds are stacked in their favor when you come from um, affluence, when you come from, you know, having a male and figure, a father figure, role models. Let's just go there. Just having role models. Um, I do know that... Um, one of the challenges is those boys acknowledging that, hey, listen, just because I don't necessarily have a father figure in my life, that doesn't give me an excuse to not succeed and to excel.
So at the end of the day, I mean, most of it was motivation. Most of the day in, in, in many of the years of my teaching was simply based on motivating kids to want to succeed. And knowing that I only have them for eight hours, once they leave, they go back to a different world. And in many cases, it was an unlearning of everything they had learned in those previous eight hours. But thank God that many of, of, of the kids that I was able to serve, many of them have moved on to become rather successful and have embraced education and are now leading families, having children, and just being winners, just being successful. So why don't we talk about some of your most memorable students? Oh, so there are a lot. I can think of one, and I thought to make mention of her. I thought to write her down. There was one student, and this was my second year of teaching, second year of teaching. Um, his name was Leroy. He was really rough around the edges. And um, there's a good chance that he didn't make it out of the inner city. I'm, I'm not saying he's deceased, but I am saying he, it was almost certain that he wasn't going to finish, you know, 12 years. He, in his anger, he threw a rock at the glass at the front of the building, and then the principal, Miss Williams, uh, she suspended him for 10 days. And this was my second year. And of course, you know, it was a lot to take in at the time, but... Of course, over the you you kind of you don't get immune, but you get used to the behavior of some of the headbangers, if you want to call it that. But he um, he was he was troubled, and there were days where we can get him to sit down and he could process. But it was really a challenge. I think his home life was just too overwhelming. It 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 dominated everything that happened in the school system. So. There were days that he just didn't come to school, truancy and whatnot. Um, that was one of the probably less positive students um, in terms of re remembering some of the moments. But he was definitely a challenge. By no stretch of the imagination, he was a challenge. Um, I had another young lady, and I remember her name when I was logging in, and now her name just escaped me, which says that we're getting older. Megan Andrews was a very big fifth grader. She kind of stood maybe a foot taller than all of the other students. But Megan was gifted. And Megan knew everything on fifth grade curriculum. And so that was a challenge for me and for Mr. Andrews, uh, a white uh, teacher who also taught at C.W. Hill Elementary, who we've become lifelong friends. But Megan was like, this is easy. Like, I, I, I need to be challenged, you know? Yeah, this is a fifth grader. And um, so we actually created, you know, curriculum for her. Actually, we just grabbed sixth and seventh grade uh, manuals for reading, for math, and she really soared. She was doing algebra not pre-algebra, she was doing algebra in the fifth grade. And Megan is successful. She's married with kids. She's on Facebook. She texts, not text me, she messaged me uh, a couple of years ago and just said, Mr. T, I just want you and Mr. Manning to know that I made it and I'm so thankful that you guys were in my life when I was in school. Like she's married with kids now. 
And I'm like, whoa, Megan, like, put the brakes on. Like, I know you as a big little girl, you know, but of course... Um, that just, you know, brought me to tears. But Megan is doing so well. And the beauty of Megan was, like, she was an anomaly. She knew everything that she she was just advanced. And I don't think that her parents did anything unusual. That they were. She just had a love for learning. She had a love for learning. And so I'll never forget Megan Andrews. My biggest success, um, it's tied to a couple of things. It's tied to growth. Um, I think we're lifelong learners. It, you know, that's the phrase that we hear in this field. Um, sometimes it gets on your nerves. <laughs> right. Um, but I think that definitely student success is just one piece of it. Um, yes, we're here to serve. But the truth is, and we who are believers, we know the Bible says that one plants Another one waters, but God brings the increase. And so many of the seeds that we've planted, we're never going to see the fruit, as you and I both know. And so I don't necessarily say student success is my success because I don't know what the kids have done with the information that they've been given. But we trust that they are going to use it and they are going to shape the world and they're going to be influenced or they're going to influence the world around them. Um, one of the biggest success for me is going to work and hearing a kid say, Mr. T, look what I did. I made a 97 on my reading. I ready exam, you know, or Mr. T, you know, this was the first time that I came in first place on Kahoot or quiz is like those little things right there. I'm just like, okay. You won, Mr. T. And of course, you know, that that's just intrinsic for me. But that is how I measure success. I measure it one day at a time. It, it definitely is. Um, it's a marathon. It's a marathon. Some of the challenges are um, some of my administrators who um, did not have empathy for many of the educators in the classroom. Um, Empathy for me personally, um, of course, in one breath, you know, a, a principal, I remember a principal whose name will be nameless, but I remember, you know, she would speak of how important it is for us to serve the kids and to make sure that we are doing what is necessary. But it felt very much like uh, somebody, like a taskmaster behind you, just making sure that you do this almost to the point of being anal. And I've had over the years some very challenging principles, as we all have had. And they all have different styles, but that has been a source of um, frustration because some do not necessarily see the value in a good educator. And one can say that to be a, maybe they could say, hey, a good educator is good at all of these things, but you should know your, your staff strengths and weaknesses at the same time. And you should be able to galvanize where you see there may be deficits in one area and there may be strengths in another area. And one of the big challenges I've had professionally is having served under administrators that were not able to see the strengths that I personally brought to the table, um, not even as a male, but just as a professional professional.
and uh, it caused me to 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 leave some some schools. Um, I stayed within the district. Well, in one case, I left the district and went to another, but um, that definitely was a big challenge. So we're talking about interpersonal skills now and relating socially or relating professionally with administrators. Um, I've had very few problems with uh, teachers. It's always been in the area of administration. Yeah. That was just one, you know, depending, you know, sometimes it's just not a good fit, uh, administrators and teachers, which is why um, there is a transient uh, rate that's happening in elementary education, in education period, where, and and especially with, you know, the bureaucracy, the politics of it. Um, I don't know about the state of Alabama, but in Georgia, uh, last year, because of the pandemic, uh, they had decided the kids were not going to be assessed on the state standardized test. Um, here we call it the GMAS. Um, it has so many names from different states, but you know what I'm talking about. Well, this year they are going to reinstitute it. And to be quite frank, why reinstitute it this year if you didn't institute it last year because you knew the kids didn't really grasp the concepts? Um, but this year they're going to count it. And and the virtual learning platform, I have not done the research, but in my estimation, it has negatively impacted our black and brown babies, especially those who come from uh, disenfranchised, low-income homes. Who come, who come from poverty. Because number one, they have internet. Now I'm on my soapbox. They're giving them internet. They're giving them these hotspots. But you're talking about 25 megabytes of bandwidth. So you got four and five kids on a hotspot. And the internet is so shoddy, it's as if they don't have internet. I have several students now who have not been in school virtually nor face to face because either their internet is just not working or something is wrong with the device and it's a challenge and I don't blame the district and I don't blame the children but we are in a quandary and our kids the the gap is the gap the learning gap is growing because of this COVID-19 pandemic all I'm saying is something's wrong with the system, especially in this new virtual platform. The playing field is not level. You know, if everybody had high-speed internet at home, that would be one thing. But, you know, we've got kids who, you know, the power just went off. Right. Because you've got a single-parent mom who was waiting tables or who was busing or who was a waitress, and she hasn't been employed for the last six months. Correct. But I'm preaching to the choir. You know, you've been telling you what you already know. What you but already this is, I mean, but this is, this is the reality. This is the reality. And yeah. I, I just, it's not seen. It's not known. Um, right. And there are expectations either by the district, by the system, and by even the community, the society um, around the schools. But the infrastructure is shoddy. Right. And I, I was listening to a news report about just across the nation, how many kids have not been in school this school year, period, in person 
or online. Online, right, right. That's a problem. And mm-hmm. yes, many of them are black and brown. Most of them, I would say. Most of them are black and are brown. Black and brown. So you can't throw money at the problem. You can't throw technology at the problem and expect. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I'll go off on a tangent there. So, but, but you were here. We're with the pandemic. What was it like shifting or pivoting to accommodate the, 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 the shutdown last year and then going into a new school year? Are you 100% virtual? Are you in person? Are you hybrid? So I am hybrid. Um, uh, the Atlanta public school system recently uh, became a hybrid model. The first year, as you know, it shouldn't be the first year because we actually went um, virtual toward the end of last year and then started virtual this year. Um, we were strictly virtual up until February, February of 2021. And um, we are now in a hybrid situation where the parents who have elected to stay home and have their children learn virtually, that's one. And I have 12 students that I see face-to-face every day, but they also log in to Zoom, and I'm still teaching to the screen. I'm still teaching to the screen. Um, We are fortunate in that we have a half day or school. I take that back. It's not a half day, but um, the kids go to lunch. I teach third grade. They go to lunch at 11. They go to their enrichment courses or their specials at 11, excuse me, at 12 o'clock. And at 1230, online instruction ends at 1230. However, the students who are in the building, while it ends, we take advantage of having those face-to-face kids. And so we're pushing to get them to master those skills so that we can have a percentage of students who either meet or exceed the expectation on the standardized uh, testing. So we're just taking advantage of those kids that are present because we don't have, we don't have, we, we can't touch them like, we can't touch the kids at home like we can touch the kids who are coming face to face. So that in itself is a blessing. Uh, the instructional day ends at 2.15, and those kids, most of them are bus home or parent pickup or van riders. And how was the transition? Was it smooth? It was Relatively not. Relatively smooth. Was it rocky? It was rocky. It was rocky. When we were told yeah. that um, the pandemic is here and that you guys, everybody's going home, we're shutting this down. Um, it was like a virtual vacation, but then after a couple of weeks, you started looking around like, wait a minute, this don't feel right like it did before. And so people were getting cabin fever. They were talking about wearing masks and you shouldn't go out. And so that anxiety was definitely there. Um, the biggest challenge was just adjusting to all of the, uh, virtual resources that the district purchased but did not really provide the training. I mean, you're learning on the job. You're building the airplane as you're flying. And so there were many resources that were given to us, but the training was not necessarily put in place for us to use them and teach them with efficacy and with true results. So um, 
our district, they pour money down the Atlanta public schools, probably one of the largest budgets in the Southeast. Um, but the downside to that is they're throwing so many things down the pipe, it's very challenging and difficult to master this particular uh, instructional device that we're using. iReady is a major device, a major virtual platform that we use to close the gap in reading and math. The kids are supposed to log in every day, 30 minutes for reading, 30 minutes for math. Um, it disaggregates to every child's ability level. And of course, we use that to, you know, create our lessons and make sure that we're differentiating the instruction. Um, yeah, I want you to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. We're right here. We're right here. But that was one of the bigger challenges getting uh, Pat. As a matter of fact, we needed like crash courses on Zoom, just how to turn kids microphones off who kept talking or, you know, once we enabled the chat and typing in a pro. So it was a learning curve for professional teachers as well as the students. Um, teaching the kid how to turn in a virtual assignment. And I haven't even been trained on how to even find the assignments or give the assignment. So we, it was a learning on the job kind of deal. Yeah. Uh, this is mm, April. This is April. And I think we're good. Now. <laughs> it uh, Listen, I feel like I'm pretty good now, but that's like seven months, you know, school is almost over. So I can, you know, I, I need one more. Give me one more year and I will make bricks without straw. <laughs> yes. I love it. I, I will do it, but I need one more year. But I feel like, yeah, the kid, a lot of the children still miss the boat. And a lot of it has to do with technology. A lot of it has to do with not necessarily having solid internet. So, you know, the district spent thousands of dollars on these hotspots. I don't even know what a hotspot looks like. And I don't even know how much it puts out in a room so that a child can actually have a conversation without sounding like they're breaking up or things like that. I just don't know. But I do know that a hotspot is not necessarily the answer or just throwing a child a Chromebook or an iPad. There's something else that has to there's some training that needs to take place with parents as well. And I'll be the first one to tell you that many of our parents who are much younger, um, closer in age to their children, their, their style of parenting often lends itself uh, to not meet the needs of their children. I, I tried to say that as politically correct as I could. Yeah, it, 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 it's been a challenge. Um, you've got some parents, as you know, who, um, who are very involved in their child's education, but a great deal of our black and brown babies, uh, the parental involvement is at best minimal. And uh, we have been trained to not rely on the parents to do the teaching. We are the professionals, but at the same time, there's a big challenge there because I'm pushing this curriculum, but it's not necessarily translating at home. And, and some of the lessons, some of the content 
our parents don't understand it. We have many illiterate parents, um, you know, in our poverty-stricken communities, and that adversely impacts the child. So I pray for my kids every day. Yes. I pray, I pray for my children. And um, every day I give them, I've learned, I've learned that um, yesterday is gone. So today is a new day. Listen. Whatever you did yesterday, I'm not going to bring it in here today. If you give me your mind, if you give me your attention, just give me a chance to hook you in because I've got a lesson prepared through either uh, uh, something interactive, a hook, as we as we um, have been have ha, as it's been called. Just get, just let me hook you in, and and I'll make a difference. I'll make a difference. I would tell. Uh, an aspiring educator, um, the importance of words. I, I think that's one thing I would say. Hey, just know that your words, you speak life. And I would say in my 21 years of teaching, I'm sure I've said some things that I probably should not have said to said child A or B. But um, I think what you say, uh, value the importance of words. Um, and now I'm speaking directly on, on behalf as an advocate for children. Value those words because we do speak life and death into our children. Um, that may be something they might have already known, but I would just reiterate that. Um, I would also tell an aspiring teacher um, to be patient with yourself because this profession is very taxing. Um, it's taxing emotionally. It's taxing physically. Um, we spend many hours beyond the 7.30, 2.30, or 3. We spend many hours outside of that. I've got a Nearpod that I've got to finish tonight for tomorrow for um, problem-based learning. Our PBL is, is right around the corner, so I'm working on that. Um, I love it. I mean, it's what we do. It's, it's our calling, but I would definitely tell... Um, an aspiring educator, to be patient with yourself and take care of yourself. It's okay to sometimes close the computer and put the lesson plans down and 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 just take care of you. I think that's important. I don't think I did a lot of self-care in my early years of teaching. And uh, I got stressed out in many instances, um, probably had some bouts with depression, um, but um, I'm thankful to God for the resilience that he's placed in me. And I hope to finish, you know, I've got, what, nine years left? I don't know if I could do nine. <laughs> but um, that's my goal. My goal is to, to finish strong. My goal is to finish strong. I've got a beautiful family. I've got an amazing wife and three boys. And I wake up every day for them. And I also wake up every day for my students. Um, of course, some, and that's not cliche, like I look forward to teaching, especially those who have a hunger for learning. And I know that one of my goals is to create or stir up a hunger in all of our children, you know, to want to learn, because that's really when we really get into our rhythm, when kids are actually stimulated and when they are a part of that learning process. Of course, being a praying man of faith, um, 
God has been my strength. And um, I'm thankful that uh, he's blessed me with um, a roof over my head, with gainful and meaningful employment. We live in a world now where so many people are struggling just to, you know, figure out where the next meal is coming from, how they're going to keep a roof over their heads. Um, God is the source of my strength. And, and I've got a wife who supports me, I mean, through thick and thin. And that's where my strength comes from. I'm so looking forward to sharing more stories with you, to connect with you, challenge you, and energize you. Stories create environments where we can learn valuable insights from each other's experiences. They represent our collective pain, joy, fear, faith, best days, and worst days. They unite us, teach us, challenge us, delight us, and enable us to convey messages of hope in a complicated world. There's something to learn from someone else's story. They are countless lessons of faith, hope, and love. So why not take some time to consider your own story then join us again for another story worth living.